0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Mary Tyler Moore became famous and beloved for the funny and plucky characters she played in the 1960s and 70s on The Dick Van Dyke Show and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. She's now the subject of a new HBO documentary titled Being Mary Tyler Moore, premiering tonight. Here's a clip from it where she describes getting an early boost from a famous TV comedian while on the set of The Dick Van Dyke Show. Lucille Ball was our landlady. She owned Desi Lu.
1: And we'd be rehearsing on the set, and then we'd hear a laugh that wasn't coming from the floor. We looked up, and there she was on the catwalk, and she'd be up there watching us, just observing us. And I will never forget one day she came up to me and she said, You're very
0: good. That was the greatest gift I ever received. We're going to listen to Terry's 1995 interview with Mary Tyler Moore. Over the years, she played two extremes very convincingly, the sitcom Mary, the person everyone wants as their best friend, and the cold, steely character she played in the film Ordinary People. She died in 2017 at the age of 80. At the time of this interview, she had written her autobiography, After All, revealing much about her private life, including her traumatic childhood, her multiple marriages, and her alcoholism. Before we get to the interview, let's hear some of her as Laura Petrie on The Dick Van Dyke Show. She plays the wife of TV comedy writer Dick Van Dyke, who writes for Alan Brady, played by Carl Reiner. In this scene, Mary has come to Alan's office after she was a contestant on a popular television game show and was tricked into admitting that Alan wore a toupee.
2: I
1: came to- and and to tell you personally that I'd like to try to explain.
2: Explain what? you got a big mouth. I do,
1: I know, I know, Alan.
2: If you wanted a free rotisserie or a dryer, I would have gotten it for you. I would have gotten your house, a show
1: place. Oh, Alan, you don't have to do that. Alan, could I say something?
2: You got more to say?
1: Uh, Well, I've been thinking, Alan, and... Well, for instance, I think you look very nice without your... uh, Hair? Oh. Well, yes. And, well, for instance... Now, I'm not saying this just because I'm in trouble, Alan. Although, goodness knows, I am.
2: Oh, yes.
3: But believe me. (laughs)
2: Sincerely,
1: Alan. Really sincerely. And you can ask anybody. I have always said that I like you so much better without your, uh... um... Hair! Hair! You didn't have
2: any trouble saying it on television.
0: Mary Tyler Moore's first big break in show business was playing the Happy Hot Point Elf for Hot Point Appliance commercials broadcast during the Ozzy and Harriet show. Happy Hot Point was the
1: logo of Hot
0: Point Appliance's come
1: to life, an an elf, a little uh, uh, figure with a a shock of blonde hair um, protruding from her little gray pixie cap that also had ears on it. But I was happy Hotpoint, and I would, in these commercials, be superimposed on um, ice cube trays, skating, um, popping out of the washing machine, speaking to Harriet Nelson and saying things like, Hi, Harriet, aren't you glad you use Hotpoint appliances? Except my voice was higher then, so it sounded a lot more pixie than it does now. Um, what had happened was that, at that time, and this was immediately after graduating from high school, I also got married immediately after graduating from high school and about a month after that, I was pregnant, and these um, these uh, the commercials were were almost impossible to do anymore because I had my breasts bound down to begin with even before I was pregnant because pixies are supposedly of neuter gender. And um, to try to do that after I was even one month along and certainly into two and three was impossible. And so we had to stop. And I I think they just went to straight commercials after that. And I went on to happily have my baby a few months after that.
4: Well, uh, after you had your baby, you were the voice of the... Woman in the answering service for the TV detective Richard Diamond. Right, that was played
1: by David Jansen, and it was—I uh, guess—it had started on radio. And uh, and one of the successful elements of it was a character called Sam, short for Samantha, uh, who was the answering service woman who took um, Richard Diamond's telephone messages. This was, of course, predating answering machines. And uh, he would check in with me two or three times uh, every episode, and and I would answer in, in the sexiest, imaginable voice, Hi, Mr. T. I have some messages for you. And uh, nobody ever saw Sam. You were allowed to imagine her to be your idea, your fantasy of the most gorgeous creature ever, certainly far from the reality of Mary Tyler Moore who at the time was a fast uh, 23 or 22-years-old, freckle-face, all-American girl-next-door
4: type. Now, let me jump ahead to The Dick Van Dyke Show. What were you told about the character of Laura? Um, Just that she was going to be a wife,
1: a television wife, and that really had its classical parameters and dimensions, and they were established, and they hardly ever varied except... Uh, as to whether or not the wife was the star of the show, in which case she was the funny one, or if she were um, the straight man for the male star, and she was then totally supportive. But all these wives were kind of obedient, and you know, a representative of the vows to love, honor, and obey. Um, they hardly varied from that. And uh, with with Karl Reiner's uh, character, the way she was written. Laura actually had opinions of her own, and um, while she was asserting herself, she also didn't make Dick Van Dyke look like a dummy. Um, it, it, it was a, a matter of two people. I mean, society's uh, um, expectations at that point still said, hey, wait a minute, lady, you only go so far here. But I think we broke new ground, and and that was helped by my insistence on wearing pants, you know, jeans and um and capri pants at the time because I said I've I've seen all the other actresses and they're always running the vacuum in these little flowered frocks with high heels on and I don't do that and I don't know any of my friends who do that. So why don't we try to make this real and I'll dress on the show the way I do in real life. But it wasn't that easy. The sponsors were afraid you'd look <laughs> brazen. Right. They 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 pointed specifically to uh, they used a term cupping under. And I can only assume that that meant my, you know, my, my seat, that um, there was a little too much definition. And so they allowed me to continue to wear them in one episode, uh, one scene per episode, and only um, after we checked to make sure that there was as little cupping under as possible. <laughs> but um, Cupping under referring to the fit of your pants. The fit of the pants, On yes. On your behind. On my behind, Right. But um, within a few weeks, we were, we were sneaking them into a few other uh, scenes in every uh, episode, and, and they were definitely cupping under, and everyone thought it was great. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, you know, women liked me. They, they were not envious of the fact that their husbands had a crush on me. It was okay with them. Uh, they um they were the first to you know when I would meet people, they'd say, "My husband loves you so much, and he thinks you're so sexy and this was a, it was an odd thing because they were also able to identify with me as a friend, as a girlfriend. Um, there was no resentment,
4: no fear yeah, well, I think that that speaks so well for for the character and your your portrayal of her. Um, why capri pants? why not <laughs> Why not longer pants? There was a store in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills called
1: Jack's, J-A-X, and a man named Jack Hansen owned it, and it's now no longer there. Um, and he designed these trousers, and they came in all fabrics and all price ranges from cotton to the finest uh, moire silks. And I adored these pants. I loved them. I lusted after them. And I could just barely afford the cotton ones. But when I had a paycheck and it was on a regular basis from, you know, dancing in the chorus, I would make sure that I added another pair of pants to my wardrobe. And those were the design that that I wore along with with several hundred other young women who shopped in Beverly Hills then.
4: Now, how did you come up with a voice to say, Oh, Rob?
1: (laughs) I don't know. Um... I guess it began with the cry. The first uh, time I cried was the episode in which um, uh, Laura bleaches her hair blonde, looks in the mirror, and with her friend Millie's help decides she looks more like Harpo Marx than, than what her goal had been. And so she quickly tries to dye it back before Rob gets home from work. Now, this is a real stretch of the imagination. She decides to dye one half of her head back, not being able to get the other half done before Dick walks in the door. And so she greets him, half blonde, half brunette, and sobbing. And um, I had always been a big fan of Nanette Fabre, who worked with Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar on, um, on the show Shows. And I loved her humor. I loved the way she cried. And so when I was called upon to bring forth the tears in my scene... Um, I'm not sure how much of it was out and out stolen from Miss Fabre and how much of it was just a matter of influence, but uh, there was definitely a cracking in the voice and uh, an inability to maintain a tone and uh, a a certain amount of verbal yodeling um, that took place, and from that came, oh,
4: Rob! (laughs) (laughs) Um, did, Did you do a lot of rehearsing with Dick Van Dyke? Or did you just have to do it minutes before the actual broadcast?
1: Oh, the whole show was done um, in what they call multiple camera technique. It's still done today. But back then, we were maybe the sixth or seventh show to use the technique. It began with Joan Davis, not Lucille Ball, as everyone thinks. Um, Joan Davis did a show called I Married Joan. Um, what a
4: girl, what a world, what a life. Hey, yeah. good
1: for you. <laughs> and then Lucy and several other uh, shows followed. But in that show, it's a little like doing theater that's uh, captured on film. You rehearse for five days. And then uh, on the um, evening of the fifth day, the audience comes in, and the cameras having blocked their moves and yours uh, lined up with them, you you film it from top to bottom uh, in continuity. So during those five days, it was um, at least the first three days, it was very much a matter of rehearse and contribute and attempt things and not be afraid to fail, to make a fool of yourself. Just pick yourself up, and if it didn't happen this time, then the next time you experiment, maybe it will. It was a wonderfully supportive creative environment. And Dick Van Dyke was the most generous and supportive human being that I have ever worked with, and he very strongly influenced my life and my standards um, when I went out on my own later on. Oh, I
4: have another question about uh, Laura Petrie's look. Yeah. Laura wore a flip, perfect little <laughs> flip. Yes. Uh, whose idea was the flip, and how were you wearing your hair in real life at the time?
1: In real life, I was wearing it in a flip, but it it wasn't quite as backcombed and lacquered as it was on the show. I mean, that thing had so much hairspray on it, you could hang clothes from it.
4: When you say that thing, was it your hair or was it a wig?
1: Yeah, it was my hair, but uh, but it was it was quite thoroughly sprayed and and done by somebody else. Uh, but my in person uh, in between shows that that was the way I wore it. It was just a little
4: limper. Well, let's talk about. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, a show which I still love to watch. The Mary Tyler Moore Show got started because CBS wanted to build a series around you. Mm -hmm. And you and Grant Tinker hired people to, you know, write, come up with the idea, write a series. What was the original premise?
1: The original premise
4: was uh, not too different from
1: the one that we ended up um, pursuing. But I was to be divorced from um, a doctor. And rather than having, as we ended up doing, having me live with this doctor through medical school and internship and residency and then been dumped. Um, CBS felt that having been divorced was uh, unacceptable from a societal point of view, that people would see nothing humorous in divorce. How could you possibly laugh at a woman who had a broken marriage in her past? And not only that, but my God, they would think you were divorced from Dick Van Dyke, the world's most wonderful, adorable person. That's so silly. Yeah. And instead, what's so odd from a morality point of view is that they found it acceptable that I had lived with this doctor, never married him. And then the the, the relationship broke up and, and I went off to start my new life. So I don't know. Morality, I guess, is a very personal thing.
4: The character of Ted Baxter was originally conceived as being someone of your age. Right. And there might be some, like, romantic attraction between you.
1: Exactly. He was probably going to be tall, dark, and handsome. And instead, what walked through the door was Ted Knight. Short, uh, white-haired, and handsome, yes, but uh, not what you'd call a a love interest. Uh, But the writers, um, the writer-producers, Jim and Allen, were so open. And I think that's an important part of being a successful artist is is being open to new ideas and input and they saw this man and they began to think potential all right so it isn't our original idea but oh wow look and feel and and salivate over all the juicy stories we could do in another direction and that's what happened and they cast ted um, what went them over was that big pretentious voice part of it (laughs) You know, there was another thing that that won them over. It wasn't just the the fact that he was pomposity to the nth degree, but that there was a vulnerability and a a sweetness to Ted. Um, We found out later that Ted, who was a more out-of-work-than-in-work actor, had gone out and bought himself a blue blazer and a crest and had it sewn on the pocket so that he would look the part and um, everybody just thought that was, uh, you know, real throat-clenching stuff. And you know, if there had been any doubt about whether or not he was the right one, that clinched it.
4: <laughs> you write in your book that later into the series, Ted Knight wept um, because people thought he was really stupid. Yeah, they confused him so much with the character.
1: Yes, I don't remember exactly what year it was. I think it might have been, might have been the second year, or the maybe no, I think it was the first year. And and people were mistaking him for the character he played, which is so often true for those of us in television. And they would, uh, and of course, both their the the first name was the same, Ted. Ted, and they they were calling him stupid. And oh, you're the funniest dumbbell we ever met. And somebody called him a dumb schmuck. And he came into um, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns's office. Actually, it was only Alan in the office this day, and he was unable to speak. He was just sobbing, and apparently it had just spilled over at that particular moment. He said, I can't go on, I can't do this. I am a dignified man. I have standards, and I am proud, and I'm well-read, and everybody thinks I'm stupid. And um, so Alan pulled out all the stops and reminded him of all the great clowns in history who were cerebral and admired and who did great works in life by, uh, by not only the good works themselves, but by making fools of themselves, by pratfalling, by doing all the, the dumb things that make people think you're dumb. And he was pretty much convinced and on his way out of the door when Jim Brooks came in and said, Ah, Ted, 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 the world's favorite schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oops! <laughs> but he had a sense of humor about it, and uh, he got it out of his system. I think that's all he needed to do. I think, you know, that's probably all a lot of us need to do on, on many occasions of frustration is uh, is just say it, get it out, and uh, sort of let the steam out, you know, let the, the top of the kettle off for
4: a minute. I think one of the real uh, f- famous moments in television openings, and one of the famous freeze frames is you throwing your hat in the air <laughs> <laughs> in the opening of the show with the right. jingle underneath. Yeah. Um, do you remember that moment? Oh, do I?
1: It was freezing cold. It was in uh, Minneapolis in uh, in January, I think, or February, and um, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just there to grab a lot of footage that shows a, a young woman's exuberance uh, being in a new city, looking around, gazing at the sights, and I had in my hand a a hat, a a little beret that my aunt had given me for Christmas. And I had packed that along with whatever other warm things that I had, which weren't too many because I was a Californian, to go to Minneapolis to do these uh, film spots. And um, Jim Brooks said, oh, I have a good idea, Barry. Take that hat, put it on your head, and now run into the intersection, and it'll be all right, we'll watch for cars. And throw it up in the air as if to say... This is my town, and I'm celebrating my life that is taking place. And, and I did it, and luckily, magically, wasn't hit by a car, although I got some pretty strange looks. And in fact, in I guess it must be in every episode, you can see this one woman in the background who looks at me as if not only am I the world's strangest person, but that she would like to personally lock me up. Um <laughs> But it's it's interesting, isn't it, that something that becomes burned in in people's impressions and memories it can happen so happenstancely out of nowhere. It wasn't written. It was, it was just a spur-of-the-moment idea. So that traffic was the real thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was. And it's a good thing I didn't have to speak any lines because my lips weren't working. It was so cold. I literally could not form words. Huh.
4: Um, I have a colleague here who said, the Mary Tyler Moore show made me who I am today, single. <laughs> and I thought that was particularly funny because, you know, all those years you were playing Mary Tyler Moore, you had no idea what it was like to be single. You right. got married as soon as you got out of high school. You divorced, but you were only single for about six months before marrying Grant Tinker.
1: That's right. Boy, you've read the book, haven't y- you? Yes. Yes. <laughs>
4: Um so so really you'd never lived that kind of single life?
1: No, I hadn't. And um and when Grant and I finally ended our marriage and I went to New York to do a Broadway play, Whose Life Is It Anyway, uh I decided to stay in New York and um and and try to capture um my life for myself. Um I had never been on my own. I had never experienced any of the situations that Mary Richards had lived for the rest of the world
0: every week. And um, I I set about to, to make that happen for myself. Mary Tyler Moore speaking with Terry Gross in 1995. She's the subject of a new HBO documentary. We'll hear more after a break. Also, we remember novelist and essayist and literary critic Martin Amos, who died last week at the age of 73. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 1995 interview with Mary Tyler Moore. The new documentary, Being Mary Tyler Moore, premieres tonight on HBO. When they spoke, she had just written her autobiography titled, After All.
4: I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your own family when you were growing up, since after all, you know, you, you portrayed one of the most famous couples on television on the Dick Van Dyke show and then mm-hmm. had, had a wonderful family of friends and colleagues Yes, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. When you were growing up, your own family was probably what we'd now call dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. It's an overused phrase, and I wish we could be a little more specific about it. I agree. My, um, no, and I didn't mean to cr- no, criticize you for that. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no that. I didn't take it that way. <laughs> my, um, my mother and father were um, very much the couple that Grant Tinker and I became. Um, uh, I They say that you do follow the patterns that you, you grow up in, and, and this was certainly true in my case. Um, it, Wasp, repressed, unable to deal with things that are uncomfortable, uh, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, not discussing anything that's that's ugly or unpleasant, and um, and just muddling through. Um, a little of um, Beth Jarrett in Ordinary People came mm-hmm. from those people, from myself, and um, I emulated that with with Grant Tinker. My father is a uh, very well educated uh, um, intellectual, a lover of classical music and uh, classical literature. My mother was an English major, and everything was just perfect in that house, but nobody was talking to anybody. Well, another thing that was less than perfect is your mother drank. My mother was an alcoholic, as I was to become. Um, her alcoholism took another form from mine. She would, uh, by the dint of determination, be sober for months at a time and then be unable to continue, Uh, and all of the problems that had been building up and she had been stuffing under the rug of her emotions would burst forth, and um, she would start drinking in the day, and she would not stop until somebody found the bottle and took it away and um, pretty much held her captive in the house until she sobered up and we were able to plead with her to to stop and um and then she would try again. Uh, back then nobody knew what we know about alcoholism today and and the kind of counseling it takes and the, the kind of sharing and support that is needed to to get through this, to to break this uh cycle. My form of alcoholism was much more controlled because I grew up in that very uncomfortable, very sad um, uh, situation, and I determined that I was never going to do that, never be drunk. And I probably never was really out-and-out out drunk, and I certainly never drank during the daytime. But I wasted a lot of my, my time, and I, uh, I forgot a lot because I didn't remember much of what had happened the night before. Um, I got out of proportion angry about things that were really unimportant, but that's what alcohol does to you.
4: Did being an actress help you be able to drink and not show the signs of it? Help you cover it up?
1: Mm, maybe so. I, I don't think so, though, because <clears throat> once your speech is slurred, once you lose balance, the you know, th- there's no way you can pretend that away. Um, but I paced myself. I never allowed myself to drink any more than than the company I was with. And um, there that way nobody could judge me, nobody could see. Did you drink alone? Yeah, uh, I did, but I was seldom alone, um, except when I moved to New York. And then I was alone, and then my drinking really escalated.
4: Were you afraid that um, the press would find out that uh, you drank a lot. And it would be no, because whole thing. yeah,
1: I didn't think I drank a lot. Oh, I that's see. the amazing part of it. Uh-huh. Most alcoholics are in such a state of denial about their their condition. Um, they will blame everything but themselves for whatever is going on. I, uh, I I I didn't have hangovers per se, but I found that it was getting very difficult to hold the eyeliner brush uh, steady when I was applying my makeup in the morning. So. I thought, um, well, I guess that's just something that happens when you enter your 40s. And uh, it's a nerve-wracking city, so I'll just have to, you know, take a little more time with it or use a thinner brush, whatever.
4: You stopped drinking, I think it was, what, the mid-80s?
1: It was um, 11 years ago, yeah, I guess. That was the mid-80s, yes. 86?
4: You did Betty Ford. Right. um, do, Do you think your emotional character changed after you stopped drinking? Oh, there's no question about it.
1: Um, In a way, um, I sometimes feel grateful that I did uh, have this alcoholism, except that there were so many sad events that uh, were caused by it that I I can't wholeheartedly say that. But at least it got me to um, the Betty Ford Center, where I was able to, with the help of some counselors and a lot of group therapy sessions... Um, examine myself and the way I handled my life and was able to make major changes. I allowed myself to be imperfect. I allowed myself to make mistakes and laugh at it, um, to handle my real-life mistakes the way I handled the the acting mistakes on The Dick Van Dyke Show, to think of those as positive steps forward rather than anything to be ashamed of. Uh, One of the movies that you've
4: made over the years, is change of habit, which is an Elvis film in which he he plays a doctor in the ghetto, and he you're... plays a singing surgeon,
1: <laughs> and I play a nun, a plain clothes nun, a plain clothes nun who's out of the habit, and uh, it was a story about these two dedicated social workers who who come together in the ghetto to to bring about goodness to all mankind.
4: But 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 you you start to fall in love, and at the end you must choose between God.
1: And Elvis. Right, and you see a shot of me in church looking from uh, the, the Jesus, the statue of Jesus, and Elvis playing guitar. And then to Jesus and Elvis, and Jesus and Elvis, and Jesus and Elvis, and you never know at the end who I finally chose. I was Elvis's last leading lady. And he apparently said in somebody's book, he is quoted in somebody's book, as having said, there's only one leading lady that I didn't sleep with and guess what i know who she is (laughs) (laughs) right so what was it like to play opposite him it was wonderful and he was nothing like the image that uh that a lot of us have about uh about him back then gosh what was the year i don't know um um maybe 67 or 68 something like that uh he was in great shape, and he was working out, and he was watching his diet, and he was living a good life. I mean, yes, there were a lot of ladies in and out of his trailer, but he was sweet and wholesome, and he knew his dialogue, and he had done his homework. And he was—he uh, had a big crush on me from the Dick Van Dyke show, but, you know, in a, in a reserved, from a distance kind of way. Uh, if he didn't watch himself, he'd call me ma'am, <laughs> and uh, he was very shy and kind of awkward with me.
4: Now, this was hardly the film that either you or Elvis became
1: best known for. Right. I think it's better said that we triumphed over. (laughs) (laughs) In spite of this film, (laughs) we continued. Now, did you regret making the film as it was being made? Did you have a sense that this was not going? No, I didn't know what I was doing at that Uh time. Movies were new to me, and, you know, they may have not felt as well written and directed as the television shows that I had been involved in, but I thought, well, see, that's the difference in the medium. You know, this is a movie, and so they know what they're doing. And as it turned out, they didn't, but (laughs) it's all right. I really don't regret anything that uh I've done in terms of my work. Um, If I were writing a happily ever after piece, looking back, sure, there are things that would probably be better if they were erased and uh, maybe not included at all. But I think I've learned from everything I've done, and I can't help but bring those experiences to, to what I do today.
4: Mary Tyler Moore, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank
0: you. I really enjoyed it, Terry. It's like talking with a pal. Mary Tyler Moore speaking with Terry Gross in 1995. She's the subject of a new HBO documentary, Being Mary Tyler Moore, which premieres tonight. Coming up, we listen to an excerpt of our interview with novelist, essayist, and critic Martin Amos. He died last week. This is Fresh Air. We're going to remember novelist, essayist, and literary critic Martin Amos, who died last week at the age of 73. The cause was esophageal cancer. He was a member of one of England's most famous writing families and is best known for his so-called London trilogy of novels, Money, London Fields, and The Information. His father, Kingsley Amos, was best known for his satirical novel Lucky Jim and his caustic wit and curmudgeonly personality. Martin shared his father's caustic wit. His Washington Post obituary describes Martin's style of writing as kinetic and restless, weaving from satirical to comic to professorial. Human flaws such as vanity and selfishness and moral weakness abounded. In all, he wrote 15 novels, a memoir, and several collections of reviews and essays. We're going to listen to an excerpt of Terry's 1990 interview with him at the time he had written his novel, London Fields.
4: Your book, London Fields, is as much uh, about language and writing as it is about anything else. There's a, a paragraph about writing that I'd like for you to read. It's on page 23.
2: Right. This is the narrator, the, um, the American Jewish blocked writer, or failed writer, who's transcribing this tale. I think it was Montelan who said that happiness writes white. It doesn't show up on the page. We all know this. The letter with a foreign postmark, that tells of good weather, pleasant food, and comfortable accommodation, isn't nearly as much fun to read or to write as the letter that tells of rotting chalets, dysentery, and drizzle. Who else but Tolstoy has made happiness really swing on the page? When I take on Chapter 3, when I take on Guy Clinch, I'll have to do, well, not happiness, but goodness anyway. It's going to be rough.
4: (laughs) Does this describe your feelings as a writer? That it's easier to to write about uh, despair than happiness, or easier to write about uh, unlikable people than likable ones?
2: Well, I think we're all hooked on bad news, really. Um, The two two, uh, villainous characters in my novel, Keith Talent, the cheat, and Marmaduke, who's this rampaging infant, one-year-old baby, are, it seems to me, uh, easily the most popular characters I've ever created. Um, We like... Vigorous wrongdoing, I think it doesn't mean you want to have Keith or Marmaduke over for the evening, but there's a great uh, there's a great thrill in being able to read about um, wickedness or mischief when it's at arm's length.
4: you've been criticized by some people for uh, misanthropy in your writing and and misogyny. Uh, is it just your pleasure in in creating unlikable characters?
2: Well, you see, they're not... People never
4: know, I think, whether it's it's you or just your uh, sense of what what writes well that we're seeing.
2: Yes, it's that. I mean, you see me, if you saw me in my civilian guise as the person who, you know, goes into shops and conducts his life, um, you would think me, you know, rather unusually polite and considerate and pleasant. Um... But when I go into the study, some sort of demon takes over, and you know, I, I own up to feelings of schadenfreude in my fiction. I, I delight in discomfort, mischief, wrongdoing. Um, but it is, it's, it's as if it's another person doing all that. I do just find that comedy comes from the, the pointed end of things. Um, from, from really sharp interactions between people. I'm not a very subtle writer. I like the grotesque, the extreme above all.
4: It seems to me that you, you're working out of two really different impulses. One is this desire to fend off nuclear disaster, to spread the message that will help save the world. And the other is to make people uncomfortable, to write about wrongdoing, <laughs> about mischief.
2: Well, it's, uh, I think that's just the traditional comic thing in rather an extreme form in that... Uh, you know, Nabokov has this wonderful paragraph where he says, the way you punish the gangster in a, in a work of fiction is, by, is not by having a tiptoeing assassin sneak up on him. It's by watching his horrible little finger probing around inside his ear as he makes some fatuous deal on the telephone. It's through <laughs> contempt and laughter that you really pay them off, not through some trite punishment or conversion.
4: Now Your, your father... Is uh, a well-known English writer Kingsley Amos Uh, when did you start writing
2: I started writing when I wrote my first novel which when when I was about 21 Um, but I'd always I think all writers maybe all artists get the call in adolescence and I was about 14 when I decided that this was what I was gonna do and that was before I mean I knew my father was a writer but I didn't know what kind of writer he was. I mean, for all I knew, he could have been writing westerns or supermarket romances. I didn't know he was a mainstream writer. I didn't know what the mainstream was. But I, I sort of felt that I was going to write about everyday life. Did you read your father's books? I, when I, a little bit later, when I was about 17 or 18. Did you like them? I adored them, and still do. Um, I like his stuff a lot more than he likes mine, but that's, that's in a way how it should be. It would be a little... Creepy if he were mad about my stuff. I mean, you, you, you like the generation that came before. You don't like the generation that's snapping at your heels.
4: Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you started writing, was your impulse to show your writing to your father or to hide it from him?
2: Well, he remembers. I don't remember this very clearly, but he remembers coming into my room. I was still living at home. I was just you know, I'd finished university and I was had a few months before I moved out. Uh, he came into my room and I. Put my arm over the typewriter um as a sort of instinctive gesture i didn't want him to see what i was writing but i didn't show it to him until i left i went on holiday and left the galleys or the bound proof on his desk so no one saw it until it was in, you know in that form so later on
4: did you look to your father for encouragement for, for for a sign of like do i have talent
2: um i don't think i was too anxious about it um disgracefully cool to say <laughs> um, I think he was nice about the first novel um, you know not fulsome the great thing is he never encouraged me he never gave me a word of encouragement
4: what's so great about that
2: well I know quite a lot of writers who have encourage their children to write and it usually ruins the relationship um, the thing is writing talent isn't very strongly inherited there aren't many cases of it um, and I'm not talking about the son of a writer producing one book. I'm talking about him producing a body of work. Um, th- there are practically no examples of it. So when, when the f- 16-year-old writer's son shows his daddy that poem he wrote or this short story he wrote, and the dad goes nuts about it and says, you're going to be a writer too, it's a very very complicated emotional thing. It's like, as if the dad is saying, you can have my life, you can be me. Now, what what will happen in practically every case is that the son will not have enough talent, will not be a writer, and will then feel completely that he's been betrayed by his own father. And I know several cases of this. And um, I'm sure it was pure indolence on my father's part, by the way. I'm sure he didn't think it out, but he did do exactly the right thing, and I'm very grateful. And you know, we have a of a very nice relationship, and um, it was never in danger.
4: Well, thanks a lot for talking with us.
2: Pleasure.
0: Martin Amos speaking with Terry Gross in 1990. He died May 19th at the age of 73. If you want to listen to more of this interview or other interviews with Martin Amos, check out our archives at freshairarchive.org. Coming up, a review of the new live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. This is Fresh Air. After recent remakes of Aladdin, The Lion King, and Mulan, The Little Mermaid is the latest live-action remake of a Disney animated classic. The new movie, which opens in theaters this week, stars Holly Bailey as the mermaid Ariel, Javier Bardem as her father King Triton, and Melissa McCarthy as the sea witch Ursula. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review.
3: I haven't really been a fan of Disney's recent live-action remakes of its most beloved animated titles, a practice that may make commercial sense, but feels increasingly like an artistic dead end. Even so, I tried to keep an open mind when I heard that The Little Mermaid, one of my favorite movies in the Disney canon, was getting the do-over treatment. This kind of retread may be unnecessary, but unnecessary doesn't have to mean unenjoyable. And with that brilliant Alan Menken score and those ingenious Howard Ashman lyrics, and yes, I can sing the whole thing from start to finish, really, how bad could it be? The answer is not that bad, but also not that good. Like a lot of its fellow Disney remakes, this Little Mermaid too often feels like a dutiful cover version rather than an inspired reimagining. The story hasn't changed much. The good King Triton, played here by Javier Bardem, has forbidden all mermaids and mermen from visiting the ocean's surface, warning them that humans are dangerous. But that hasn't stopped his youngest and most free-spirited daughter, Ariel, played by Halle Bailey, from becoming deeply fascinated with the human world, which she learns about by collecting artifacts from shipwrecks. In this scene, Ariel sings longingly about how she wishes she could be human herself. I want to be where the
1: people are, I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them,
3: oh, feet, flipping your fins you don't get too far, legs are required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down a, what's that word again, street, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wander free, wish I could be part of that world. When Bailey's casting was announced last year, she received a torrent of abuse online, slamming her and Disney for recasting Ariel as a Black Mermaid. It was a sad reminder of how angry some people get when a remake or reboot doesn't cater perfectly to their childhood memories, and also how easily some can couch their racism as nostalgia. Speaking as someone with no small attachment to the original Little Mermaid myself, I'd say Bailey's casting is one of the few instances in which this new movie actually demonstrates some fresh thinking. Her singing voice is as lovely as the role demands and while she's not always as vivid in her non-musical moments, she keeps you fully absorbed in Ariel's journey. The other actors are more of a mixed bag. As Eric, the hunky human prince whom Ariel saves from drowning and falls in love with, Jonah Hauer King toggles between dashing and drippy. Javier Bardem is a great actor, but even he can't do much with the solemnly bearded King Triton, who's saddled with some of the movie's more fake-looking CGI. Melissa McCarthy puts a wickedly mischievous spin on Ursula, the many-tentacled sea witch who transforms Ariel into a human for a very steep price. Too often, though, she goes for easy laughs at the expense of real menace. But the characters who fare the worst this time around are probably Ariel's faithful critter friends. In the role of Scuttle the Raucous Seagull, a little of Aquafina's goofball shtick goes a long way, And David Diggs, of Hamilton fame, struggles to make an appealing sidekick out of Sebastian, the worrywart crab who tries to keep Ariel out of trouble. That has less to do with his acting and singing than with just how unappealing the character designs are. What made Sebastian and Ariel's fish friend Flounder so memorable in the original film was their glorious cartoonishness. Here, they look creepy and dead-eyed. The filmmaker Rob Marshall has lately become Disney's go-to director for musicals, for reasons I don't really understand. His film of Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods struck me as one of the murkiest-looking movie musicals in recent memory, though I'd sooner sit through it again than his 2018 effort, the charmless Mary Poppins Returns. The Little Mermaid, for its part, does have some charm. Its aquatic sequences are no match for Avatar The Way of Water, though Sebastian's big under-the-sea number does achieve a nice level of Busby Berkeley-style calypso craziness, and the story fitfully surges to life above water, especially in a few freshly scripted scenes in which Ariel and Eric's romance takes center stage. The movie could use more moments like that. The screenwriter David McGee does try to put some new riffs on old material, he fleshes out the long-standing tensions and misunderstandings between humans and merfolk, and he also tries to make Ariel a tougher, more confrontational heroine. Along similar lines, Prince Eric is now a more vulnerable, fully-rounded character than before, as we can hear when he expresses his longings in a new song written by Alan Menken and Lynn manuel Miranda. The song is a nice touch, but as with so much in This Little Mermaid— it isn't on a par with anything in the original the movie is pleasant enough but i wouldn't call it seaworthy
0: justin chang is the film critic for the la times he reviewed the new live action remake of the little mermaid
3: Ooh, get me.
0: On Monday's show for the holiday, Samara Joy performed some songs for us. This year, she became the second jazz performer in Grammy history to win Best New Artist. She also won for Best New Jazz Album. I hope you can join us.
3: I can understand I get misty Just holding your hand
0: Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman and Julian Herzfeld. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. I'm Tanya Mosley.